This is an ABC podcast. Good morning. I'm Aggie Dubal, your host for Pacific Beat. On ABC Radio Australia, this is a Thursday morning. What is on the show today? Well, there's more help uh, that is needed for women affected by domestic violence in Papua New Guinea. Five journalists who lost their lives in 1975 and Timor Leste have now declared that day its National Press Freedom Day to honour them and all journalists. We'll, uh, you know, we'll continue to promote, you know, not just promote the human rights, but also uh, find ways to defend the journalists, uh, uh, particularly in, in performing their duties. And the Rock of Polynesia? No, it's not Dwayne Johnson, but New Air. They celebrate their 49th anniversary of independence today, so we'll have more on that story later in the show. So stay tuned, I'm Aggie Dubal, and this is Pacific Beat. Firstly, Papua New Guinea has been described as a mountain of gold floating in a sea of oil because of its abundant resource wealth. Resource projects like the massive PNG LNG project have significantly boosted government funds in recent years. But new research by the World Bank suggests that has not translated into lower levels of poverty for the Papua New Guinean people. Liam Fox takes a look. Times are tough in Wanapup village in Anga province at the northwestern end of PNG's rugged highlands. They've been that way for a long time and things are getting worse, according to local Tony Sulapen. Our literacy level is very low. Bulk of the population are illiterate, so their living standard has not improved. The government is not focusing on the rural areas. So much money is, is being stolen and uh, Funds are not reaching the rural areas. Mr Sulapen works for a local NGO trying to help women, the unemployed and people living with disabilities generate income through farming and move beyond subsistence living. But even if you can grow a cash crop, there's no way to sell it, he says. Our government is not providing market. Our government is not providing uh, credit facilities like uh, our Farmers can obtain uh, seed money to start up their small activities. So there's no market uh, infrastructure like a road is collapsed. For his work, Mr Sulapen can earn up to 50 kina a fortnight. That's around 20 Australian dollars. He's better off than most. Our people don't have a, have a source of income. Their fortnightly income ranges from zero to uh, 10 kina. In a fortnight, that's uh, the kind of situation, a financial situation. Ten kina, that's four Australian dollars per fortnight. Wanapup's story is not unusual, according to analysis by the World Bank. There hasn't been a detailed look at welfare and well-being in PNG since the 2009 Household Income and Expenditure Survey. So senior economist Sharad Tandon drew on comparable data from other national surveys to fill out the picture for indicators of poverty like monetary deprivation, educational attainment, access to electricity, sanitation and clean water. We found that, that as in 2009, there, there was a significant degree of hardship in the country uh, and that there hadn't been much progress made between 2009 and particularly between 2016-18. Uh, and, and then it doesn't like, look that there was a very big improvement between 2018 and 2022 as well. 
He found the share of the population living below the poverty line was largely the same in 2018 as it was in 2009, dropping only slightly from 40% to 39%. Other indicators like access to electricity, sanitation and clean water also barely moved, and if they did, it was in the wrong direction. All this, Mr Tandon says, despite overall economic growth, thanks to big resource projects like the ExxonMobil-led PNG LNG project. Many things have changed in the country, and it just shows how invariant the, the, the degree to the which the population benefits from these things. Uh, and talking about needs for, for new engines of growth, if the traditional engines of growth really aren't cutting it for people. The World Bank did not investigate the question of why there hasn't been much change to poverty over the last decade. Back at Wanapup Village, Tony Sulipan reckons the answer is simple. It's the government of Papua New Guinea. Uh, our government is, is, is very corrupt. So much money is, is being stolen. Maho Lavale, a Papua New Guinean economist at the Lowy Institute, agrees corruption is a big factor. He notes the period in question coincides with a change in national government policy to give members of parliament more discretionary funding to take care of the health, education and infrastructure needs in their electorates. It's known derogatorily as MP slush funds. It's about 10 million kina allocated per member of parliament. But all the projects that have been funded, a lot of the stories that we're hearing is that um, projects have been subpar have been left incomplete and haven't addressed the population growth and um, kept up with a lot of the service delivery demands. He believes a good first step in addressing poverty would be to reduce political interference in service delivery and strengthen provincial bureaucracies. Take the MP out of um, determining day-to-day operations and determining policy and where funds are allocated and spent and then um, do an audit of um, the financial operations as well as an audit of manpower and skill so that we know exactly where the skill shortages are and we can address those issues at the provincial and district levels. If there is a change, Mr Lavale says PNG has the opportunity to make up for a lost decade with several large resource projects on the horizon like the Papua LNG project and the Wafi Goldpoo gold mine. We've got a lot of uh, resource revenue slated to come in Um, but it's really addressing a lot of the problems from the previous spikes in resource revenue and how government can um, really uh, address the development issues with the money it receives. And that is economist Mahal Lavelle ending that report from Liam Fox. Pacific Beat. As the Pacific's largest uh, economic power, should Australia be doing more to help the disadvantaged and marginalised? Well, the Women of the World report by the Catholic Church's Aid and Development Agency, Caritas, shows Australians want the government to provide more help to women affected by domestic violence in Papua New Guinea. So joining us live this morning to speak more on this is Lana Hanley, Africa and Pacific Associate Director for Caritas Australia. Of that I say good morning, Lana. Good morning. How are you? Oh, I'm great. Thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate your expertise on this. Uh, I, I just want to start off saying, when it comes to how Australians feel about discrimination in the Pacific, uh, what was the big takeaway uh, from this report? 
Great. Um, so we uh, conducted a survey of over a thousand people here in Australia about their understanding of gender issues in both Australia and across the Pacific. And some of the, um, the questions we asked were around gender discrimination, leadership, representation, gender pay gap. And in regards to some of the responses around the Pacific specifically, they we found that 38% um, believe that gender discrimination is worst in our neighbours in the Pacific. We also found that four out of the five Australians believe that we should be supporting survivors of domestic violence in Papua New Guinea um, in particular. Um, and we found really encouragingly that almost 80% of people felt that we should be doing more to support family, uh, sorry, females to participate in politics. So there was just really overwhelmingly a support from Australians around us doing more to support our Pacific neighbours in areas of gender-based violence and elevating women in politics. You're hearing that 80% uh, mark seems like we are on the right track then if we are feeling that, you know, based on what you guys have done on this report, uh, with Australian audiences feeling, uh, you know, the discrimination that is happening in Australia and the Pacific. But, but why was that comparison an important way to approach it for Caritas? Um, so I suppose for Caritas, we're, we're very much um, cognizant of the fact that we, we have programs in place that are doing the best in terms of gender equality for um, in, in, in the Pacific. And it was just interesting to see, like, what do our, you know, supporters and Australian supporters think about these issues as well? So it was actually really um, important for us to see that actually where we're investing our funds and resources and focus is actually aligned to the expectations and the priorities of um, the Australian community. Uh, and apologies, it is Caritas. I had pronounced that uh, incorrectly. Oh, there. no, Sorry. <laughs> absolutely yeah. fine. Uh, it also said that four and five people were surveyed saying that Australia should be doing something about this discrimination in the Pacific. Uh, do you believe then, Lana, it's evidence for the government to actually take action then? Uh, look, absolutely. Look, I think, and I think just to acknowledge that the Australian government already is. So, uh, as we know, uh, DFAT has just released its development policy and it's very, uh, very clear in the policy about the focus on gender equality and that all programs should be supporting gender equality efforts in the Pacific. So, just to acknowledge that the Australian government has taken this on board. Um, I think also what's really positive, um, in particular in Papua New Guinea, I'm not sure if you're aware, but there was recently a report that was tabled in Parliament which showed that rates of gender-based violence and sorcery are actually higher than that has been estimated. So up until now, it was been estimated that 60% of, um, over, sorry, 67% of women were experiencing some sort of form of violence. And this report showed that that was an under, that's most likely an underreporting. So the PNG Parliament, for example, has taken that very much on board and they've, um, they've passed the motion to do further exploration and an inquiry into that. So I think any evidence that we can show around the fact that there is a real need to, to address these really critical issues is a positive thing. Yeah, what have been some of the key findings there, uh, Lana, in regards to gender violence affecting, again, the majority of women? Yeah, so again, it was, I think the, for Papua New Guinea in particular, I think the, the piece that is is the underreporting piece. So we know that, you know, gender-based violence happens. It doesn't always get reported. I think a, a, a statistic that really shocked me was that there is an extremely low conviction rate. So I think for those who perpetuated sexual violence, since January 2021 up until April 23, only 4% of people were arrested. So there is a, there's a massive issue in terms of law enforcement being in a position to be able to take action. We work with, um, so Caritas Australia, we work with 
local partners um, in the Papua New Guinea, and in particular, we work with Catholic safe houses. So these are safe houses that provide safety and protection and care for survivors of gender-based violence. But we, um, a big part of what we're trying to also work with them in, and that they're very excited about, is developing further referral systems with health uh, with the health system and with the police as well, so that when cases of violence occur, the those survivors. Sorry, the survivors are um, absolutely responded to and perpe uh, perpetrators are uh, convicted. Mm, that's so good to hear. Also, the report um, looked at women leadership in the Pacific. Mm. I'd like to know, how did more political leadership for women uh, correlate with ending gender discrimination? Yeah, oh, look, great question. I think... Um, so it's an interesting one. <laughs> so with, I think we can acknowledge that, you know, globally, uh, women in leadership positions is, is comparatively low. I think it's only around 20%, which is of ministerial positions are held by women. In the Pacific, it's a very, it's a bit of an interesting one. So you've got Samoa, who obviously has a female prime minister, and then you've got Papua New Guinea, who since 1975, have only had nine women um, elected to be ministerials of parliament. But overall, what we know is that when women are involved in decisions that affect, that affect them, it leads to better outcomes for women and children and to the community as whole. So the more that we can um, have, you know, things in place such as quotas, et cetera, we know that there'll be policies and resources allocated that are going to be best able to respond to issues that affect women specifically, such as gender-based violence. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, finally, Lan, I want to know, now that uh, Caritas has this Woman of the World report, what's next? Uh, look, this is a really great question. I think we're still we're still thinking through what will happen in terms of sharing the report more widely. But I think for now, what we're saying, what we're seeing is. Um, I guess it's, it's sort of supporting our position and our, our strategic focus on working with women and um, women issues and girls. So we will absolutely be sharing this report more widely so that others in the sector, the Australian government, other governments in the Pacific are aware of some of the findings. But um, we're still, yeah, we're still using it at the moment as a bit of a roadmap to, to think about the next step. Yeah, well, we look forward to those next steps, Lan. I really appreciate your time this morning. Thank you so much. No worries. Have a great day. You too. That, of course, is Lana Henley, Africa and Pacific Associate Director for Caritas Australia. You're listening to Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. Uh, October 16th is a day of infamy for the people of Timor-Leste and the Australian media fraternity. On that day in 1975, five journalists employed by Australian media organisations were killed in the city of Balibo during the Indonesian invasion, then part of Portuguese Timor and what is today known as Timor-Leste. To mark the day, Timor-Leste has declared its National Press Freedom Day. The ABC's reporter in Timor-Leste, Vonia Vieira, travelled to Balibo to mark the occasion. She spoke to Ombudsman for Human Rights and Justice, Virgilio de Silva Guterres. This was the first year we commemorated this day as the National Press uh, Freedom Day uh, for Timor-Leste. And this is to, uh, you know, uh, another symbolic uh, event uh, to explore or to absorb the values that uh, Greg Shackleton and friends uh, uh, they give to these people in this place through their sacrifice. Uh, so um, we hope that with this uh, symbolic commemoration, 
their sacrifice will continue to inspire uh, Timorese journalists uh, to continuously, you know, serve the people with uh, with quality, with qualified uh, information, qualified news, uh, particularly uh, as what uh, what they have done in the past. They travel from Australia, they leave their families there to, to Timor-Leste just to find the, the truth uh, uh, here in Timor-Leste. So this uh, uh, effort, this uh, struggle, uh, I hope that will inspire young journalists. What's your expectation for the struggle continue for Timor-Leste after independence? Um, journalists is considered as the human rights defender because they, uh, they did uh, their profession, is a profession to fulfill the right of public to, um, to information. So uh, I think uh, uh, Timor-Leste, with, it, with this uh, uh, commemoration, will, uh, you know, will continue to promote, you know, not just promote the human rights, but also uh, find ways to defend the journalists, uh, uh, particularly in, in performing their duties. That's Abundsman for Human Rights and Justice, Regulia da Silva Guterres. Speaking there to ABC's reporter and Timor Leste, Vonya Vieira. Up shortly will be your news rep with producer Talia Auli Itia here on Pacific Beat. Welcome back. Yes, it is that time uh, where we head around the region just to see what is the latest. And that's brought to you by producer Talia Aruditia here with our news wrap. Good morning. Good morning, Aggie. Hey, look, police have searched the properties of a Vanuatu MP. Why? Yeah, Vanuatu Daily Post is reporting that Umbai MP Jay Nwele's properties were searched by police following accusations of the misappropri- misappropriation of over 1 million Vatu, which was intended for road construction on Umbai of which to date no roads have been built. Mr Nwele served as Minister for Infrastructure and Public Utilities under former Prime Minister Bob Lofman and the police search followed a complaint by former Infrastructure Minister Marcellino Barthelemy regarding those road funds. Now, police gained search warrants from the court to search three properties, but Mr Nwele said that only two of those properties were actually registered under his name. The Vanuatu MP said he welcomed the search because no one is above the law. However, he did raise concerns that police had taken private property from him that had nothing to do with the allegations. There's some serious allegations. Um, we head to a new trial, though, that'll see easier travel between American Samoa and Samoa. Yes, something that's been long awaited. Samoa Observer is reporting that the uh, that American Samoa has approved a trial that will allow 400 Samoan citizens a month to travel to the US territory for less than seven days without having to get an entry permit or a visa. Now, this comes after the Atoa or Samoa bilateral discussions which were held between government delegations from Samoa and American Samoa earlier this month. Now, under the trial, if a Samoan is travelling to the territory and intends to stay more than seven days, then that 30 days permit is still going to be required. Um, like I said, this has been one of uh, one of the key achievements from that meeting, and it was an issue that was also discussed at the Atoa or Samoa bilateral in April. At that time, American Samoa had offered this travel 
all in exchange for the removal of departure tax for American Samoan nationals. But the Samoan Prime Minister had said that the departure tax applies for every departing passenger. So I'm not exactly sure what the exchange was to allow this trial to go through, but it will definitely be interesting to see how many people take it up and, you know, how it does um promote travel between the two places. Talia, I just have to say, I just have to get to Samoa. I've never been. Oh, really? So this issue between <laughs> travelling between islands, I've just got to get there in the first it's place. absolutely beautiful. Yes. I will tell you as someone who um, I'm going to shame my father right now, <laughs> but we did try to go to Samoa a month ago, like was at the airport and then it turned out he didn't have six months on his passport. Yes. Um, so we weren't allowed to go. So this is just a reminder <laughs> to everyone in Australia, even though your passport is valid for 10 years, make sure that you have six months on there because you will not be allowed to go to Samoa. I was literally I going, why is it the Samoan? I was like, Do you, who is letting us the down one and at only the moment? One job. Let's shame to oh, It's all right, Dad. No worries. Hey, look, we end off on sport here, though, because the coach of the Flying Fijians will be wooed to stay. Yeah, I don't think that that comes as a surprise to anyone, given the response. Um, following head coach Simon Raiwa-Louis' announcement on Twitter that he wasn't planning to ex- extend his contract past December, but the the Fiji Rugby Union are not letting him go without a fight. Interim Chief Pete, Peter Maisie telling the FBC that he'll be the first one trying to get him back. Have a listen. Look, I'll be the first one they say sign and we want you back. Go and have a holiday and come back. Now, you can understand, given all the turmoil that's going on with um, the Fijian Rugby Union, that, you know, now also having a to put in place a head coach when, you know, you're dealing with an interim chief and, you know, everything that's going on. Um, Mr. Maisie says that, you know, he knows he's going to have his work cut out for him, but that would, re- but that he would really appreciate that um, Mr. Raiwa Louis would perhaps foresee something that involves him still staying involved with the team. Um, Mr. Maisie says that he will meet with Mr. Rawalui and the team management to discuss its future, um, but also says that the FIU will respect his final um, decision. So they're not going to make him stay if he doesn't want to. Um, Now, in um, flying Fijian news, they are flying at the moment to come back to Fiji and are expected to arrive today at around 7pm Fijian time. No doubt there will be a true Fiji and welcome at the airport, especially considering they've been away from their families in camps um, that began 15 weeks ago in July. So obviously a lot of people will be excited, not just for rugby, but just, you know, to see their loved ones. Um, And it's also worth mentioning that ITV is reporting that TV coverage of the quarterfinal match against England peaked at 7.7 million viewers and had a 39% audience share, making it the biggest audience for a quarterfinal in 20 years. I wouldn't be surprised if the last 20 years was the last time Fiji made the quarterfinals, but really wow. just goes to show, um, you know, this team, a lot of love. No, but look, if they had made that much viewers, can you imagine if they made it through to the semifinals? It oh, would have been man. crazy. Gosh, so. number of people buying TVs to then watch it, they would then increase it. <laughs> Absolutely. Go crazy. I love it. Hey, look, thank you very much, Producer Talia, for bringing no through worries. our newsroom here today on Pacific Beat. Want to immerse yourself in sport and stories of athletes from across the Pacific? Well, join me, Bobby McCumber, alongside some of the most talented journalists and sports commentators from across the region for Fresh Off the Field. Each week, we'll bring you interviews with Pacific athletes leaving their mark on the international stage and those aspiring to do the same. From cricket to netball, athletics to rugby and everything in between. Fresh Off the Field, Thursdays, 6pm PNG time on ABC Radio Australia. 
Welcome back to Pacific Beat. I'm your host, Aggie Dubol. Appreciate your company. Hey, look, when Anthony Albanese's Labour Party took office, one of the Prime Minister's key promises to the region was a pathway for permanent residency for Pacific Islanders. Now, that promise is now on the verge of being delivered through a Pacific engagement visa. It's been a challenging effort for the government, but the proposal aims to see 3,000 Pacific Islanders settled in Australia permanently every year. So joining us now for more on this historic visa proposal is ABC's foreign affairs reporter Stephen Jidgets. With that I say good morning Stephen. Good morning Aggie, great to join you. Yeah, thank you very much. I love the ambience behind there. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, it's a Canberra it's a Canberra morning with the magpies cooing gently it. in the background. <laughs> oh, that's good, uh, Stephen. Look, you know, a lot of people in the Pacific have been watching and waiting uh, for this. How far away are we from actually seeing uh, the Pacific Engagement Visa become a reality? Look, not far away at all now. It looks like the government wants this up and running by next year. Now, originally the plan was actually to get it up and running by about halfway through this year, but the government has actually had a little bit of difficulty getting the legislation that's required to enable the visa through Parliament. Now, I won't go deep into the the horse trading and back and forth that's been involved, but basically uh, the government got the legislation through the lower house here in Canberra, but couldn't for quite some time get it through the upper house uh, because the coalition, the, the Liberal and National parties here, said that while they supported the idea of a Pacific engagement visa and wanted more Pacific Islanders here, they didn't like the government's plan to use a lottery system to select people to to come to Australia from the Pacific. So in the face of that opposition, the government was forced to negotiate with the crossbench, as we call them here in Canberra, so people from uh, from the minor parties, uh, and in particular the Greens. Now, yesterday there was a major breakthrough. The government managed to strike a deal with the Greens uh, to secure their support by promising the Greens that they would review another part of the migration program. Now, I won't get deep into the weeds, but basically the government said that they'd take a, a look at a mechanism that's in some cases used to essentially force people out of Australia if they're temporary migrants with uh, kids who are disabled, who's who have medical costs that uh, that are very, very high. So the Greens' argument is that is inhumane. The government has agreed to now review that in return for uh, them to throw their weight behind the Pacific Engagement Visa. That happened yesterday and it sailed through the Senate. There's only one final little legislative hurdle. It's now got to go back to the House with a, a small amendment that has been made. But that's going to be a formality because uh, the government uh, has the numbers comfortably in the lower house. So legislation, I assume, will pass this week. There's one more bill that they've got to get through, uh, which shouldn't be too controversial, uh, to also instrumentalise it. And then the department's going to get to work, basically bedding it down. And the hope, as I said, is that this is uh, open for, for next year. Wow. Definitely a bit of a breakthrough there. And it seems like quite a few moving parts to have to get through. Now, we understand there's been prominent Pacific Island like Fiji's Deputy Prime Minister Biman Prasad, who has come out and called for the engagement visa to be passed. I mean, has this helped to move it along? Yeah, absolutely. No, the government is conscious that that many Pacific Island leaders are enthusiastic about the idea and that that has undeniably put a little bit of fire under them, if you like, particularly this week with uh, Sitveni Rambuka in town. They're they're keen to achieve this as a a political and strategic win. Now, it is worth noting that, that 
it, it's not that, 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 that there is an absolutely universal acclaim in the Pacific for this idea. There are still lingering concerns in the Pacific about the fact that uh, already there is quite a bit of what's described as brain drain. So people with skills uh, in the Pacific coming over to Australia, for example, under the PALM scheme, the Pacific uh, Labor Mobility Scheme, or through other migration uh, pathways that are already open. And there are some in the Pacific that I've spoken to, not many who, who want to go on the record, who are a little bit anxious that the Pacific engagement visa could exacerbate this problem. Uh, but there are also people, as you say, like uh, Dr. Bhiman Prasad, uh, Fiji's Deputy Prime Minister, who are very forceful advocates for it and say it's a really good thing to open up these pathways, uh, particularly if it's a first step towards more freedom of movement between the Pacific and Pacific Island countries. So, yes, there are mixed opinions in the region, but uh, there have certainly been some prominent advocates uh, across uh, political establishments uh, in the in the region. Stephen, I would like to know, has it been set at its, its just 3,000 on that number of who they could bring through? Or was there some yes. sort of leeway in between there? No, not for that visa scheme, at least not at the moment. The government's made it very clear it is 3,000 people a year. Uh, and we have to wait and see exactly how they divvy that number up between various states. But I think we'll probably see a fair number reserved for Melanesian states. The government's made it clear that one of the reasons they want to put this in is because although Australia already has a pretty substantial Polynesian diaspora, as you guys know know, know very well, um, the Melanesian diaspora in Australia is much smaller. So might we see it weighted slightly more towards Melanesian nations as a, as a result? I don't know for sure, but the government seems to be hinting that that could be a possibility. Once it does get passed, do you think it's going to be an easy process, though, for our Pacific people to be able to apply? Look, Australia's immigration system is not renowned for being straightforward or easy for anyone. So uh, the short answer is I simply don't know. It will it will really depend on just how streamlined the process will be, uh, and uh, and how you know responsive the the bureaucracy is uh, to the to the needs and demands of people applying. Now, the government has said, um, at least privately, and I think publicly as well, that they want to ensure they do everything possible to make this process as straightforward as it humanly can be. Uh, but the proof, as ever, with human systems and government systems will be in the pudding, right? We'll, we'll just have to wait and see. I mean, how much of a win will it be for the Albanese government, you know, at a time when it's really trying to just win support in the region? Look, I think it will be a win. Like I said, I, I don't think there's absolutely universal, unalloyed enthusiasm for the idea in all parts of the Pacific. Um, I, I think it is a little bit more complex than that. Uh, there are, as I mentioned, some in the region who are watching this development with a mixture of enthusiasm and uncertainty, in some cases, real wariness. Um, that said, I, I don't think it can be denied that there are really strong strategic as well as just straightforward human reasons um, for Australia to want a bigger Pacific diaspora. Um, the government sees this as a logical next step in actually encouraging uh, a larger number of people into the region, uh, from the region into Australia. Uh, and there's no doubt it will also win at some political brownie points uh, with those governments and individual political leaders who are enthusiastic about the deal. Perhaps most importantly, it will be able to present the Pacific Engagement Visa to both people and governments in the region as hard proof, as evidence uh, that it's not just talk with the Pacific, that it wants to bind Australia much more closely to the Pacific with people 
people uh, as well as policy. So, yeah, I think uh, if it does pass, notwithstanding the reservations of some, the government will be able to claim it as a, as a victory in the region. Yeah, I would like to know what would be the message then for our listeners this morning, you know, who are pretty keen to apply for this visa. Uh, what would be their next steps? Uh, wait for it to be embedded, I'm afraid, is the, is the only answer that I've got at the moment, because there isn't as yet any portal open on the uh, Department of Home Affairs uh, or the immigration website, um, because it, it simply hasn't yet come into law. So, look, there are still just a few things that have to happen. It has to go through the lower house of parliament. Uh, again, and then it needs to go through the executive, uh, then it needs royal assent. I mean, this is just the, the really dull questions of, you know, the, the mechanics of, of governance and bureauc- of government and bureaucracy. So I would just advise perhaps toward, over coming months, um, keep an eye out on the ABC for announcements on more details. And the government gives us, for example, the more information about breakdown on the numbers. We'll bring that to listeners and viewers. And then after that, uh, keep an eye on the Department of Home Affairs uh, the immigration website uh, for uh, for a portal that will no doubt open up there for those who want to apply. If they want this up and running by next year, um, I assume that that means they will open up that portal, um, if not early next year, then perhaps late this year. Um, but I don't have absolute clarity on that. That's all right. We will definitely keep our eyes and ears on the story, Stephen. Really do appreciate uh, your time this morning. No problem. Thanks, Aggie. That's okay. That is Stephen Jidgets, ABC's foreign affairs reporter here on Pacific Beat. Now, New Way, also known as the Rock of Polynesia, is celebrating its 49th anniversary of independence and free association with Aotearoa New Zealand. And we take a look at what that means for future generations, especially when UNESCO has considered the status of the Vangahau New Way as an endangered language. Challenges like this question the preservation of its language and culture. So joining us live this morning to speak more on this is New Way's High Commissioner to New Zealand, Hima Douglas. With that, I say, whakarawlaiatu and Fagaway for joining us, Hima. Morning, Hima. Good morning. Uh, How are you? <laughs> I am good, Hima. Thank you very much for joining us this morning. Uh, I, I want to firstly ask, you know, 1974, again, it's 49 years of independence. Could you just share the significance of New desire to have been independent? Certainly. But before I do so, uh, just one minor correction. I'm currently the, um, not the high, no, I'm no longer the High Commissioner uh, uh, based here in New Zealand. I'm the Speaker of the New Air uh, Assembly, the small New Air Parliament. Ah, but um, getting back to your, to your question, sorry, what was the question again? I just wanted you to sort of take us back, you know, 49 years of independence. If you could share the significance of why New Air's desire was to be independent. Right. Now, um, it wasn't totally uh, up to New Air at that point in time to to, to decide to uh, take back control of their own island. It it also served New Zealand's purpose, because if you recall at that time, uh, there was a lot of pressure. Uh, from the folks in the United Nations and elsewhere uh, for the colonizers to move out of the countries that they have occupied over a long period of time. Uh, And so uh, it suited both our purpose on the island and New Zealand's purpose uh, for uh, the control of the island, as it were, to be returned uh, to uh, to Niue. 
Since then, though, what has sort of changed in terms of reliance on New Zealand? If anything, I think um, we have become uh, uh, more reliant on uh, on New Zealand um, <clears throat> because um, it's now quite obvious that if we wish to continue um, to live the, the the lifestyle, if you like, of uh, a, a small micro-island state, uh, it, it's not going to be possible for us to exist uh, on our own with the resources that we have. And so we will continue to need the assistance of uh, of New Zealand and, and of, of Australia as well. Um, if we are to uh, to uh, to continue uh, as a small island state, Hima, I know that many have you know immigrated to New Zealand to Australia. Uh, how do you have any numbers of how many Nuans are still there on the homeland, and how has this really affected Nuae? Uh, well, um, if you uh, accept the fact that we've got about sixteen hundred uh, living on the island, more or less permanently. Uh, when the plane comes in from New Zealand once a week, it goes up by another hundred, and then when the plane leaves, it goes back down another hundred. About sixteen hundred is is uh, the number of people that we have on the island. But at any time, that that um, that uh, total can vary because obviously you've got a transient population coming and going all the time. But what we have uh, discovered with the sixteen hundred, seventeen hundred odd people on the island. Um, that it is a, uh, sometimes a bit of a struggle to maintain existing services. Have you sort of seen maybe an influx of people returning to New Way? Fortunately, we're beginning to see a trickle, but we would uh, prefer it that way because then the uh, the infrastructure on the island can adjust slowly. But it, it's very promising at this point in time uh, to see quite a lot of our, our people uh, returning to the island. First of all, uh, they are somewhat shocked to arrive back on the island to, to discover uh, that the old homestead, which their grandparents and great-grandparents have spoken of so fondly, is, is in ruins. It's, it's no, either no longer there or, or it's just the foundation. So there is that urgency to go back to the island, re-establish their, their homestead, their roots, if you like, um, uh, and to have some place for them to go when they come uh, to the island. We, we hope that this will, will continue. And that trend is continuing. We have people now returning to the island and, and building uh, either to, uh, to await their retirement when they can return or just um, to have a place that they can call home Whenever they come back to the island, rather than go and live in a in a in a motel. Mm. And of course, today is Independence Day itself, October nineteenth. Uh, how was this day usually celebrated back home? Oh, there's all sorts of things going on. There's fishing competitions, there's uh, cultural items, golf games, um, uh, rugby, netball. Whatever they can, they can organise. Um, it, it's a bit of a challenge when it comes to uh, sporting activities because you probably find that it's the same people playing the different sports. Uh, one uh, today, for example, they'll be playing I don't know maybe league. Uh, tomorrow, the same people will be up playing golf and so on. So, yeah, but it's 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 a lot of fun.
<laughs> Absolutely. I suppose what would be your message then, uh, Hima, to those who are in the diaspora here uh, in Australia and New Zealand around the world about preserving the language and the culture? That, that, that is a, a, a big challenge for us uh, to preserve our, our way of, of, of uh, our ancestors, particularly our language. I think, I guess, um, the, the, uh, the thing with, with our language is that uh, it's not only the, the diaspora, uh, it, but we should also be focusing on our, our folks, people on the island. Um, we are at the stage now where if you go to the playground of uh, the, the, any of the schools on the island, the, unfortunately, the predominant language of the playground is now English uh, with a smattering of new way. And so the challenge is not only to the diaspora, it's also back on the island. We need uh, a more concerted effort in, in trying to, to, um, uh, to revive our language. Because yes, it, uh, of the, the whole world, uh, there's a mere, what, 40,000 of us. And if we don't, it's just a very small number of new hands. Um, and, and so it's up to us if we want uh, to, if we want to keep our promise to our ancestors that we would, would look after the island and the culture and the language. We have got, we, meaning me, my generation, uh, those people who, have, who grew up on the island, we have a particular responsibility, I think, Absolutely. to make sure that our language doesn't die. Yeah. Hima, look, I'm so sorry that we've got to wrap up this uh, Talanoa, but I do appreciate you giving us the insight, and I know that you guys are going to be celebrating well today. So we just want to say lahi for your time. Thank you very much for the call. No worries. That, of course, is New Air Speaker of the House of Assembly, Hima Douglas, here on Pacific Beat. It's 30 days until the 17th Pacific Games kick off in Honiara. It's the biggest event in Solomon Islands history. And despite some res- uh, recent hiccups, the National Hosting Authority says it's ready to go. As Chris Narita Almanu Leong reports in Honiara, tickets are on sale and excitement is building. First time Pacific Games hosts... And a special moment for Solomon Islands Prime Minister Manasi Songavare. I'm so happy to be the first to buy tickets for the Games, and I encourage all Solomon Islanders to do the same, to watch the game in our own country and our own infrastructure. It's a sporting milestone for the country, and Solomon Islanders are getting ready to buy their own tickets to the Games. Uh, yes, uh, we'll, be, uh, we'll be happy to purchase the ticket because uh, maybe we'll uh, join the big event. Yeah, I'm willing to buy the ticket to watch the game. And I won't be here for the games, but I know people in my village who have saved up to come to Honiara. But not everyone is taking Mr. Sogavari's advice. I would really uh, like to watch the game, but uh, unfortunately, we, we, we're kind of busy at work. Amy, not possible for me. Even for those unable to attend the games, Pacific Games Fever is building in Honiara. It will be the biggest event the country has ever hosted, and there's only a month to go before the opening ceremony. 
But if you don't live in Honiara and you're not an athlete, getting here for the games is proving difficult. Loketi Niwalatu is a Tongan who lives in Melbourne. She started planning her trip to Honiara in August after watching her two nieces in the Tonga Tala netball team at this year's World Cup in Cape Town, South Africa. And uh, while we were there, we were talking about the next game for Tala and where they were going. Uh, Salote, the CEO at the Tonga Netball, had said um, it's in Honiara. So we were so excited. I hopped on Google and looked at uh, ways of getting there and whether we could afford it. Um, What happened next startled Loketi. And, yeah, a little bit of a shock. (laughs) The cost was uh, quite high to attend the Games. In uh, look, I was comparing it to the to the trip to Cape Town, and it came out a little bit more than what we paid to go go out to Cape Town in terms of um, costings. Um, airfares, you know, through Fiji uh, Airways was about seventeen hundred one way at the time. We're talking uh, August when I had a look. I just had a look recently, and it was sold out, so there's no flight. Flights aren't the only challenge for Loketi, who was planning on travelling with her husband. Something for us, uh, you were looking at about 4K um, Australian dollars AUD. And then I recently looked last week and it was coming in at 6528 And that was for a beach bungalow. Um, there wasn't much choice as to where you could actually make a booking to attend in Honiara. There were a few Airbnbs, which was just a a, a bedroom in someone's house. It was very limited. Although the flights and accommodation were costly for her, she was happy with the ticket prices, saying she would have showed up for the Tongatala if she was able. It wasn't too bad. $38 for the opening. And then if you wanted to do a um, package for 14 days, it came in at about $1,000 in Solomon Island dollars, which equated to about $186 um, Australian for everything. So it wasn't too bad. While there's been some challenges for visitors with desperate fans posting on social media to try and find accommodation, the National Hosting Authority is confident in its final preparatory work. The road upgrades are all done, games venues are built and ready and the stadium is complete. Christian Nieng is the executive director of the authority. He says they're ready. All the games venues have been certified by the international federations. Recently, the hosting authority received public scrutiny for awarding controversial contracts. But Mr. Nieng has confidence internal measures will minimize public criticism. We have uh, the requirements under the Pacific Games Act and also other laws of our country that Mifala um, put them in place. As for Loketi, even though she can't get to Honiara, she'll be cheering on. Even if we're not there physically, in spirit we will be there cheering everyone on and, you know, we've got TV. And that was Loketi Niwalatu, ending that report from ABC's Chris Narita, Almanu Leong in Honiara. Hey, this is Nairi. Pacific Break is back. And this year, I'm one of the judges. We're on a mission to find the most talented unsigned artist in the Pacific. So if that sounds like you, send us your original track. 
you could win an all-expenses-paid, once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to perform at Rome Adelaide Festival in Australia. Entries are open now. Head to abc.net.au slash pacificbreak. And that brings us to the end of Pacific Beat. You know, for any of our stories, just head to ABC Pacific, Pacific Beat. But I'll be back next week, Monday, 6 a.m. PNG time. But you can hear us again this afternoon at 3 p.m. PNG time. Tomorrow, though, you'll have Richard Hewitt with your sports edition. Stay tuned for ABC Radio Australia, though, because news is next. And coming up after that, it's Nisha Daily. Uh, just letting you know, Pacific Beat comes to you from the lands of the Boonarong and Wurundjeri peoples of the Kulin Nation. Again, I'm Aggie Tobol, and this is Pacific. Pacific Beat.